Interval Drinks is recorded remotely. Interval Drinks is sponsored by Darwin Escapes. Welcome to the Royal Shakespeare Company. This is Interval Drinks, a podcast in which Royal Shakespeare Company resident artists talk to people who have inspired them over drinks. I really recommend working at the RSC during a pandemic. <laughs> There's no audience that matches an audience of young people. I mean, I literally left drama school thinking this will never work out. I'm trying to flatter you, but I'm probably insulting you at the same time. I don't want to be less soft. I, I want to be vulnerable. I want to wander around with all my emotions terrifyingly close to the surface and, and then monetize that. This is why I'm doing this. This is what I was born to do. And this is why I was born to do it. Meeting in the bar this week, it's Hal Chambers with theatre director Justin Alderberg. Hello there. My name's Hal Chambers, currently assistant director at the RSC. Well, now then, it's a real privilege to welcome to the podcast one of the bright lights of UK theatre, an energetic, positive, hugely articulate director who's been described by a mutual friend as having, and I quote, great charisma and a playful spirit. After three years as an assistant director at the RSC, he went on to direct many productions for the company in his own right. In 2015, he made an RSC debut of notable confidence, according to the Evening Standard, when he directed Marlowe's The Jew of Malta in The Swan. Then came 2017's Swan Hit Snow in Midsummer, The Times calling it an atmospheric, adventurous production. And not long afterwards, Justin had graduated to the RSC's main stage in 2019, took on the Bard's Taming of the Shrew. It was termed an inventive, gender-flipped production by the stage, as well as taking on some of the most challenging texts in the classical canon. Our guest is a passionate champion of the next generation. Having made hugely successful work for young people, including the critically acclaimed The Box of Delights at Wilton's Music Hall, which I saw on a chilly Christmas night a couple of years ago. He is now the artistic director of the Unicorn Theatre in London Bridge, the UK's leading professional theatre dedicated to producing inspiring and invigorating work for young audiences. It is my pleasure to welcome to Interval Drinks, Justin Audubon. Welcome, Justin, how are you doing? Um, thanks, Hal. Uh, I'm, I'm great after that intro. I think uh, my mum wouldn't be hard-pressed to have written me a nicer thing than you said about me, so thank you very much. Well, drum roll was delivered. Well, welcome to the pod. It's exciting to have you here, especially in these extremely weird times. So welcome to Interval Drinks. Um, so we're pulling up to the bar. We've just come out. It is the interval. What are you drinking? Um, I would probably have either... Um, uh, under normal circumstances, I'd be having myself either a gin and tonic or a nice glass of uh, white wine. Um, today, I have actually just got a glass of water, though, because I'm being wow. a good person. I have some non-alcoholic gin, uh, which I've been drinking a little bit uh, of late. Um, it's not as good as the real stuff, but it's it's not bad. A little early, as we record this pod, for a proper drink. But um, yeah. intervals are always an interesting time for a director. I suppose one is always looking around, certainly early in the run, thoughts running through their heads. Do you have any um, pre-show or interval rituals, things that you do at this time? So I really love the interval, uh, particularly when you're in previews, because it's your chance to just earwig and find out like where people are at with the show. So I, interval I really enjoy, and I tend to... I always sit on the end of a row. I mean, I think most directors sit on the end of the row. 
and you scarper out quickly. And then I kind of do a slightly weird loiter somewhere near the bar or near the toilets and just have a little listen and kind of check out what the murmur is, um, uh, you know, which I, I really love doing. The bit that I struggle with enormously is after the cast um, have done their warm up and kind of just before between the half and the opening, I don't know what to do with myself. And obviously everyone comes up and says, how are you? How's it going? And that's the bit where you have to kind of lie and be like, it's all fine. It's all fine. Even though on the inside, you're kind of absolutely anxious and nervous. So that's the bit I find difficult. But actually the interval, I think is really good because again, you can, on the information you get from the audience, you can then like respond and plan and do the next bit of the day. You know, like, yeah, you can kind of get your ducks in a row as to what you're going to work on in the next day's working notes. Whereas the bit that I struggle with is the bit just before the show. Yeah, interesting. I, I know exactly what you mean. It's the no man's land for a director, isn't it? Uh, and people try and talk to you and usually you, you can't really take it and you're pretty, pretty charged. And um, what's the weirdest thing or the greatest thing you've heard from an audience uh, as you've been loitering with intent in an interval? I mean, we did get a bit of, with Taming the True, we did get a little bit of, well, it, it's just not, it's not possible it could be like that, is it? Uh, like, quite often people are going, oh, I'm, I'm enjoying it, but it's just not possible it could be like that, is it? which always tickled me a lot because I was like, I always wonder if they leave Midsummer Night's Dream being like, I mean, that bit where the guy gets a donkey head, that's crazy. <laughs> I mean, I'm really enjoying it, but that's ludicrous. Um, so I did, I used to really enjoy those because they often, or, or the other classic is, well, I'm uh, particularly, again, it was a Taming of the Shrew one was, um, was you'd get, well, I'm enjoying it much more than I thought I would, which again, I love in that you're going, why would you come if you were um, <laughs> planning on not enjoying yourself? But, um, <laughs> but that, that, I don't think that was what people meant, but that's kind of how it came across. Yeah, and I think it's important that you, with that <clears throat> production, you, you ask people those difficult questions and you put them in those uh, new mindsets. And those, those discussions in the interval and afterwards, they're important. The play isn't meant to be a fully uh, formed thing in which everybody can walk out and go, well, I learned that lesson and I'm done and I can go and think about something else. It should hit you, uh, you know, a, a few days later, I think sometimes I've been certainly hit like, it's like being hit by a bus a few days later when you go, ah, oh, that's what that play was about or that's how my life has responded. And I think that's what that play did. So if you were watching a play right now, we were in an interval, what would you like to see? Like any dream production from the history past of the theatre? Um, oh, well, that is a fantastic question. You know, in a way, I can't answer with one show. I guess, can I, can I, am I allowed to? Am I allowed Keeps to have several? Away, Justin. Okay. <laughs> I really would love to see a kind of cutting edge, brand new piece of new writing that is all about uh, the moment that we're in now and the, the pandemic and what that means, you know, because obviously that is the new thing. So, you know, I, I obviously on the one hand would like that, you know, written with kind of coruscating brilliance by a Rachel Delahaye or an Alice Birch or somebody. And then, you know, I also, I, I would love to be watching the King Lear, you know, maybe at the RST uh, really up close. I always like to sit uh, down in the stalls, but on the sides, which I love that. Um, and then, again I know that I'm cheating here but it's because we've been so starved of opportunities to watch live performance I mean some kind of magnificent musical with like 30 in the cast you know I don't know um Hamilton uh, no oh I mean yes I, I'll take Hamilton yes I totally would love it. I actually wasn't thinking that. I was actually thinking more thinking? like um 
What's luck be a lady tonight? Uh, oh, guys and dolls. Guys and dolls. I was thinking guys and dolls. I was thinking, yeah, yeah guys and dolls. I mean, like so brilliant, isn't it? So, yeah, some like yeah, but Hamilton totally like something where you just get wowed by the sheer energy of the performance mm-hmm. because we have been absolutely starved of that. Yeah, I agree. I mean, the last show I saw before lockdown was Hamilton. Sorry, that's oh. why it sprang oh. into mind. Oh. So uh, what, a, what a way to finish. Mm. Um, but I have to say it was a strange moment because it felt like we really were on the verge of everything shutting down and it was a charged atmosphere in the audience. Yeah. We're going to talk a little bit more about the pandemic later, but let's, let's get on with the subject which many of our listeners might be interested in, which is your connection to the RSC. I know that many of our audiences will have seen some of your works, but let's go back to the beginning, Justin. Um, how did you initially come to work at the RSC? Well, I, I suppose my journey starts with my auntie who lived near Stratford taking me um, because I don't come from the Midlands. I'm from London. uh, Well, Croydon. um, That's where I grew up. Um, But my auntie lived not far um, away from Stratford. She's passed away now. I was like her favourite nephew and she used to take me all the time. I think from my 12th birthday, I went to see a production of Love's Labour's Lost which I think was directed by Ian Judge. I kind of looked this up one day because I was curious. Uh, And it was all set in either Oxford or Cambridge. Could have been either. And I don't know why, but there was something about it that I just found mesmerising. I saw, like, David Tennant play Hamlet. I saw Ian McKellen play King Lear. I saw Judi Dench and Simon Callow do Merry Wives of Windsor. I saw, you know, as well as, like, other unknown things like Dominic Cook's Amazing Promenade Pericles or Michael Boyd's History Plays, you know. So I saw a whole range of shows that... That was the the history... Psycho was the thing that lit me up. I was yeah. like, this is, this is the place for me. It was electric, yeah. wasn't it? It's incredible, incredible, you know, really amazing. And to see the kind of vertical use of the space, you know, then in Ooh. those shows was yeah. really... That was my, like, first connection. So it was quite a strong connection. I went to university and I did history and politics. I had no idea I wanted to work in the theatre at all. I thought I'd be, like, some kind of journalist or maybe, like, a lawyer. Or I didn't, didn't quite know what I'd do, but I thought something like that. I went to Sheffield University and while I was there, I um, just joined the Drama Society out of a kind of whim, you know, and uh, the the people in my in the Drama Society were all really keen and kind of like thought they could work in the theatre and like they thought it was like a thing you could actually do. And I mean, I, it kind of baffled me at the time. I then was a teacher for a bit and after being a teacher, I was like, what am I going to do? I don't think I want to be a teacher the rest of my life. And so I did the, the master's course at Birkbeck. You go on a placement for the second year of it and you go and be the assistant director somewhere. And I got really fortunate in that I went to what was then the West Yorkshire Playhouse, what is now Leeds Playhouse, um, and assisted lots of people, lots of whom had a kind of RSC connection. At the end of my time there, Paul Hunter was going to be directing his production of Comedy of Errors. And um, he said, would you be interested in being my assistant? And to which I was like, yes, uh, that would be amazing. I didn't really, I didn't quite understand how lucky I was. And um, he said, you've got to go and meet Michael Boyd, who runs the RSC. So I was like, okay, fine. So I went and went with Michael Boyd down in London. And uh, I sat and had this meeting. And of course, like all the best meetings, we didn't talk once about theatre. We talked about life. Uh, and halfway through the meeting, he gave me an orange. He said, do you want an orange? And I said, uh, yeah, I'll have an orange. Yeah, that sounds good. I was like, I left that meeting going, wow. That must have gone quite well. I mean, we ate an orange together. Um, <laughs> and then, because it was for the long ensemble, which was like five different directors, what I didn't realise was I'd have to meet all of the directors to get, 
So, but but I think because I thought, well, I think he likes me because he gave me an orange. Uh, meeting all the others, I had a kind of like strange confidence of like, well, I think it'll be all right. And then I got offered a job, and ironically, I didn't end up assisting Paul Hunter because it couldn't work out timing wise. Um, but I ended up assisting Lucy Bailey and uh, David Farr and Roxana Silver and Greg twice. So that was my kind of journey in by being an assistant. So yeah, all really positive, Hal. I feel mm. like there's there's no there's no fun juicy gossip there, is there? That's no, like... it sounds like an incredibly <laughs> exciting time to work there. I, I really recommend working at the RSC during a pandemic. You know, it's really <laughs> it's really unique. Um, yeah, I'm having an amazing time, but for many different reasons and and like you it was complete you know complete Shakespeare geek and history geek before I came here so it's a thrill being here even if in slightly strange times but we will be back um, and we'll be bringing work to the stages we hope so do you have any defining moments of the RSC when you look back on your time there and and even the, in the productions you directed in your own right what what memories spring to mind you think wow that was neat so I remember having a moment of being like, oh, I'm going to be able to like do this for my career. And I remember that moment really vividly, which was uh, I had assisted Greg on a production of Twelfth Night and it went into the West End um, to the Duke of York's theatre. And uh, I think we teched like maybe like the 19th, 20th of December. Like, I was very, very close to Christmas. Like, I guess it was the whole thing. It was like, you know, doing Twelfth Night during Twelfth Night kind of thing, I think, in the West End. I remember, like, leaving Preview and walking, like, down St. Martin's Lane in the middle of the West End, and it kind of started to snow. And I just remember being like, oh, wow, this is my life. Like, I'm just leaving a West End theatre, uh, you know, which I just would have just been out of my imagination. I have to say, like, doing the last performance of The Jew of Malta and The Swan and, like, it had sold out and... um the, the kind of cast as they came on for their final bow and like, yeah, obviously everybody stands up and thing. And you just being like, I was really proud of what that show did and what it said. And I was like, oh, I, you know, I didn't mess this thing up. Like I just had a great time doing it. Mm. So I think those two kind of stand out. Um, the other, the other funny one was doing the BSL in, interpreted integrated sign performance of Snow in Midsummer. So you have to like re-tech the show, obviously, because yes. you're going to put a new person on and there's all sorts of dangerous stuff happening. And the cast obviously don't ever, you know, this is a, it's so funny for us directors, but you, we forget this, but obviously the cast actually never see what the show looks like ever. And I remember sitting there and um, next to me was Daniel York and Daniel just went, oh my goodness, this is what it actually looks like. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, 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 this is what he was like. It's so cool. I was like, yeah, thanks, thanks. <laughs> so I enjoyed that as well. That was a nice moment. Oh, nice. I think it's really important to acknowledge moments where you are enjoying it and you look back on that your little 10-year-old self who might have dreamt of doing something crazy like this. Because I find working in the theatre industry is incredibly relentless. So much hustle. It's really hard. And actually, it's okay to momentarily go, this is a fun thing to do. And it feels important for that moment. Uh, the BSL integrated interpretation sessions are absolutely amazing. They're so exciting. Could you tell the, our audiences a little bit more about how they work practically? I think I might have done the first one with the Jew of Malta. I think it was the first one the RSC did. They'll probably check that and tell me I'm wrong. But it was definitely very early, if it's first or second. I didn't really understand how it would work. Uh, a performer comes who is uh, obviously as fluent in British Sign Language, and you essentially find a way that they can be 
on stage in the action uh, in the world of the play signing the play with the story so rather than being on the side so the uh, patrons who are deaf have to kind of look to the side and then look backstage they're in the middle in the thick of the action the incredible thing is they've got to not only like sign the entire script of the play for the audience but they also have to avoid getting their like head smashed in by a sword or like falling down a trap hole or it's genuinely as a feat of theatrical ingenuity it's amazing and to watch it it just adds another layer of storytelling to the show. I mean, I, I love them. They're great. Um, let's talk about Shakespeare briefly then. In the sort of grand theme of what we're doing today, if you could bring one Shakespeare character to life and you could sit down and have an interval drink with them, cosy up next to them, who would it be, you think? So you've kind of got to, to have an actual drink with. I just don't think you can you can choose other than Falstaff. I was going to say, that's I don't think choice. it's... To, that's to have a drink with. That's not necessarily to have a conversation with. I think Falstaff's a strong choice. Falstaff is a he'd strong choice. He'd have some stories for you. You'd get very drunk and you'd, have, you'd end up somewhere you wouldn't want to tell your mum where you ended up. Yeah, but you wouldn't, you wouldn't necessarily choose him as your... As your um, Setting a bad example, I'd suppose. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I think maybe you'd want to have a chat with Helena um, from All's Well That Ends Well. Because I think really interesting character, so determined, so brave, so incredible, but like kind of on a, I mean, you know, my own personal view of Bertram, he's a terrible human being. So I'm kind of, I'm kind of interested into what she sees in him. So I guess that's where I'd go. If you could stage any Shakespeare play that speaks to our current moment, these strange and unprecedented times, what, what would you be thinking about putting on? So, I mean, it does all feel very King Lear at the moment, but I do want to save mm. that till I'm of, of certain more advanced uh, years. Um, I think that Cymbeline would be really pertinent right now because I go, uh, you know, what is the state of this union in a meaningful way? Um, what is this kingdom? What does it mean? Uh, what does this land mean? I think that does speak to this moment because in Cymbeline, like, the hope is embodied in the children and I go, I hope we're not going to let them down too much but um, mm. I definitely, uh, you know, feel like the children, yeah, they are the hope, they are the kind of redemption. So, yeah, I think, I think I'd choose Cymbeline. That's a great thought. That's really helpful because that cues up my next question, like, like a peach or an orange, you might say, Justin. Um, so you've managed to maintain an equal passion for classical theatre and work both with and for young audiences, the next generation. How do you maintain uh, a career working with two art forms at opposite ends of the spectrum? So, uh, yeah, thank you, Hal. And I know you've done the same thing. I guess the unifying thing, artistically, they neither of them are interested in naturalism. Yeah. I mean, if you presented, you know, a kind of fourth wall naturalism to a nine-year-old, they'd, I mean, I think they think, well, they just basically go, why am I watching the television? Uh, or the iPad probably these days, but... I think that's probably the artistic thing, that as an art form, like, naturalism is not the thing that I'm most interested in making. And for both ends, if you're doing classical work and if you're doing um, work for young people, you're probably going to avoid naturalism. The thing that I love, again, about both worlds is the kind of rawness and the raw energy. Like, uh, there's a... The stakes for in classical work are always... I mean, Sis used to say a thing that I don't think I can say on a podcast that children are going to listen to, but that there was only several reasons why 
people ever walked on stage in a Shakespeare play. One of them was to fight someone. One of them was to do something else to someone. And one of them was to um, uh, rob somebody. So I think there's a kind of truth about that. Not that theatre for young people is obviously the same set of things. The kind of the kind of work for children, young people that I want to make, the stakes are super, super high for those young people. It means everything. It's the world crumbling. And I guess that thing goes across both of those worlds. Yeah, I agree. The big stakes, the high stakes. And also it means that you as a theatre maker can go big on your vision and the joy and the, won- the wonder, yeah. I think. And that's what they give you, these plays, is that they're extraordinary. I call it Shakespeare land. It's like a theme park. And, and it's the same with work for young people. You can be really expressive. You know, I found that it can be sometimes a little easy to get pigeonholed as a director in terms of the work you make. But how do you manage to um, get that real variety of work? And how do you manage to keep doing this on and on? So in all honesty, I don't entirely know how. <laughs> uh, it would be, the, would be the honest answer. Um, it was a really conscious choice though. The thing I love about work for young people, again, aside from the stakes of the actual work, there's no audience that matches an audience of young people. They feel it so rawly and so excitedly and they'll tell you when it's not any good to them or that they're not interested or, and likewise, they'll tell you when they're really affected. And the kind of lack of politeness I find very pleasing, um, and I find you can learn a lot as a director. You can go, ah, oh, I've missed this bit or I've got this right. And and then I, I guess I had a phase, Hal, of just doing shows that I didn't understand. Like, I don't do, this is not how I do work. This is not how I choose things anymore. But I had a phase of going, I'll take a show on if I don't, if there's a thing in it, I don't know how to solve. And I think it was a really good decision at the time because it meant that you had to learn how to solve things. Um and I guess that by the nature of doing that, that meant that I moved across form from spoken word to a musical to, you know, like in a way, there was a choice in trying to keep my choices eclectic, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah. And I think the things that are challenging are the things that always attract me to and the unstageable things in plays always attract me. Um, I love to try and work out how on earth you do those things. Can you give me an example of a particularly difficult challenge and one that you did in the end overcome. I don't read music. I'm not musical at all. So I took, I deliberately took on doing a show that was a piece of performance text uh, with a brilliant writer called Annie Siddons, um, who is awesome, and essentially took the challenge on because I wanted to learn how to kind of uh, fit the music to the words, the, mu- the words to the music, to uh, paraphrase Shakespeare terribly. And really, like, I learned so much from that and working with a musician really closely and going, actually... It's as much about whether I read the music or not. It's not the point. If It's about the, A, most of it, like most of art, I think, is about rhythm and like working out what the rhythm of, of a piece of storytelling is. But also that actually you can collaborate directly with a musician, you know, by just talking with them in emotion and they will translate that into the music that you want. I really respect that, Justin, because I think sometimes you see directors directing a lot of very similar kind of plays. And I like the fact that you can go and do some music stuff over here. You can go and do a gender flip Shakespeare over here and you can make work for a five-year-old over here. And that for me is, is really exciting. And I think it's a really good test of your, your strength, really. Um, let's talk about the unicorn. Um, now, some of our listeners may have been there, taken their children down, but many, this might be slightly new. Would you, first off, just maybe very um, succinctly sum up what, what you do at the Unicorn? What, what is the Unicorn Theatre? So we live in a purpose-built home uh, down in London Bridge. 
And every year we do between like 10 and 12 shows um, that are fully professional in terms of um, acting, writing, directing, designing, all of that stuff. But they are all written and created for children and young people. Um, And we have two spaces. And I suppose one space, the claw, which is a really amazing space because you can do anything you want with it. And then we have another space, which is the Western Theatre, which is a 300-seat amphitheatre-style theatre with bench seating for children and its scale in terms of the stage and the performance size is for like it's as big as like a a theater for adults i call it the mini olivier it's a little mini olivier yeah that's a really great (laughs) putting it that's a it's a better way of putting it yeah it's a little mini olivier just for work for young people and there's obviously loads of brilliant studio work for young people up and down the kind of country but the one thing there isn't is kind of mid-scale work for young people specifically uh, or a space that's specifically designed to do that so what are you able to champion in this position that you wouldn't otherwise be able to do if you weren't running the building? So, I mean, there's uh, three reasons I wanted the job at the Unicorn. One was I love the audience, as I've already said extensively. Secondly, the mission is really clear and all the staff in that building know what the mission is and get behind that mission. It's great. Um, but the third reason is the range of commissioning that you can do. You might be doing a device show about getting dressed for three-year-olds, but you also might be doing a kind of, oh, yeah, the show in which hopefully nothing happened, which was a kind of weird Bucketian rift on what making a piece of theatre is uh, for eight-year-olds. And then you might be doing seven easy pieces by Milo Rao, which is, uh, sorry, five easy pieces, I should say. Um, You know, a look at kind of the relationship between uh, the Belgian state and uh, the kind of serial killer Mark Dutroux. And like that as a, as a spectrum of work is kind of in, in, incredible. There are a whole range of things to try and make our industry more equitable that you can only really do if you run something. So mm. that goes down to, you know, who you commission as writers and the kind of diversity within that. Likewise, you know, I could come in and go, well, I don't want to have on all white creative teams anymore we're not going to do that and if you're the boss they that's a thing and you know every artist can kind of go okay yeah I, I understand that i get behind that so there are those kind of structural things that you can do that you you can't do as a freelancer you can do things by example but actually if you are running something you can kind of do it because it's your policy does that make sense very much so and you know your audiences from from when i've visited have always been very diverse and and how 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 do you achieve this uh, in bringing in such a, a sort of a diverse audience into your space? So um, the truth of that is that obviously our audiences reflect the area we're in, which is predominantly, you know, uh, South London. I mean, 40% of our audience is a school's audience. And by their very dint, those are just really diverse in all the ways that you can be diverse. And that's, that's great. I, I think it's also true that like our front of house team again is reflective of the london around us and we try and make it reflective of the london around us and welcoming of that that's not i'm not here also to say that we get everything right how like we can do more and we can be better and we can be more welcoming um but i mean generally yeah i I think those two things are kind of combined the fact that i think people from all backgrounds feel pretty comfortable in our building because it feels open and welcoming and the fact that you know we we actively go and find uh, our school, our local schools and, you know, talk to them and tailor programs specifically to them and so on and so forth. Like, that's the kind of, the kind of key, I think. 
So let's talk about um, the big questions, um, especially about the state of UK theatre. In the short term, Justin, as an AD of a leading theatre in the UK, what are we looking at? <sighs> so I wish we were starting with all positivity, Hal, but uh, it is. <laughs> uh, these are days you obviously don't know these are going to happen and you don't prepare for these. Uh, nobody at my job interview on the board said, what would you do uh, in the midst of a global pandemic, Justin? <laughs> uh, so I can't wait till I'm on an interview panel and get to ask that question with somebody. But nothing takes the place of live experience. Like, we all know this. And like like we were talking about earlier, and we're talking about what we'd want to see. You know, I'm so greedy for it. I want to see three things. Um, so one is what the RSC have been doing, which is doing outdoor work, I think is highly important. And I think next summer, all the theatres are going to be doing a lot of outdoor work. Like, I can only see that is a big, big thing i think people will continue to digital work in the meantime i don't want to be pessimistic but i don't think you will see more than three or four handers until we have a much better handle on the pandemic itself that doesn't mean we can't do things as i said we can continue to make digital work like like most of our digital work came out of surveying teachers about what do you want what can help you and i do think that's the thing that we can all do is that we can be serving our communities in a really meaningful way. We can be providing artists into schools. We can be doing like CPD for teachers. We can be running workshops. in, And I think that will happen soon. Like now that schools have got a handle on kind of COVID processes, I think you'll see more artists going into schools and more shows going into schools. I think that is a thing that will happen. But the whole thing of that live experience and shared live experience is it's, you know, that's the, that's the frisson, isn't it? That's the tension. That's the fun bit. That's the being in the, to quote your friends on Hamilton, being in the room where it happens. Do you know what I mean? Like that's the thing you love. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, I, to use a football um, <laughs> side point here, my friend and I, when we go to see the Arsenal, we see a good game, we come out and we always shout to ourselves, we were there. And that's what you get. That feeling of being in a mass gathering, frankly, um, is something that we all long for and we hope to get back. Um, when we do get it back in whatever form that is, be it with small casts, bigger casts, whatever, how do we make our work urgent? Look, again, we've lived in a time of unbelievable Tumult. I don't know if that's how you say that word. I never know. I always like saying it, but never. Sounds tumult. very clear to me. <laughs> um, uh, and uh, none of us know what the long-term ramifications of that are. But if there's one thing theatre's really good at doing, it's like asking the questions about what that will mean. Um, you know, Sis Berry used to say a thing that, you know, just the thing that's always struck me is like, how do you make Shakespeare speak for now? Um, the nowness of it feels like so important and i think obviously that'll matter for reinterpreting what we do with classical work but also there's going to be a whole plethora of you know this the 17 year old now who's had his a levels cancelled not only will they you know tackle what the world of tomorrow has to be where we all work from home and hoverboard into the city center or something on a friday i don't know um but also the fact that they're their their entire social reality has been mediated through technology over this whole time as well. Like that will feed into the work. Do you know what I mean? And that could be a complete rejection of technology. I don't know. You know, like none of us know, do we? It's just, it's definitely going to make for exciting stuff. Like hundred percent, 
hundred percent, it'll be interesting. Yeah, I agree. Um, so I suppose my next question is, uh, who who is theatre for now? You know, lots has happened in the last few months outside of the pandemic. The Black Lives Matter movement has come front and centre. So who is theatre for moving forward? And how do we tackle and answer these questions right now? So this is such a good question, Hal. Um, I do think we have to fundamentally relearn what we think we know about theatre. We've, all of us, got to look at um, the kind of, the structures that basically privilege uh, a kind of white Eurocentric predominantly patriarchal male view of what theatre is. Um, and, I, and, I, and I think that, that responsibility is on all of us. And I think at the end of it, it will mean that all of us, regardless of where we're from, our gender, our sex, our heritage, will make more interesting work and like better work. Like I actually, the creative case for diversity is the really key one to me. The more voices you have and the more stories you have to tell, the better the art form is. Like that's what keeps the thing new. I completely agree, Justin. How, how how do we do this? And do you have any examples of people who have already taken those steps to readdress the balance? Um, so the three concrete changes I think need to be made by all theatres and well, I think probably all arts institutions, to be honest with you, um, and probably wider in society, are uh, at governance level, you need to ensure that you've got proper diversity and proper representation. So from, from the... That starts at the board. The board have to be representative. Then all the committees and advisory panels and oversight that you might have, you know, equally likewise, have to be truly representative of all the stakeholders of that organisation and all the citizens that they serve, because we are here to serve people. Secondly, you need to um, have uh, transition and succession plans in place to ensure that amongst executive level and senior leadership teams roles at major organizations um you have systems in place and pathways so that black asian and uh, ethnically diverse candidates have a way forward into those roles and that can be a mixture of training and taking kind of um proactive steps to recruit from those kind of backgrounds mm. and then lastly at the kind of entry level you need to ensure that your entry level positions into an organization meet the kind of standards of if you're in london the london living wage or elsewhere the national living wage so that uh, they again are open and accessible to a diverse range of candidates and you know like regardless of heritage or income background socioeconomic background disability etc etc if you do those three concrete things, I think you would see an enormous change. And that's before you even get to the art. But just if the makeup of the organisation does that in itself, if every organisation does that in itself, you will then see that reflected much wider in everything that organisation does. And the kind of sense of inclusion will be a thing that just permeates the organisation. There's been some real progress on that in recent years, 100%. Look, look at, you know, the Young Vic, the Bush, uh, the Bassey Art Centre, you know... Uh, Royal, Ex Royal Exchange, uh, Stratford East. I mean, I think we're unusual in the Unicorn in that we're the only theatre that I can think of which had uh, a person of colour transition to another person of colour amongst the Arctosis directorship. I can't think of another theatre that did that. Like, Quinny Morel, to me, is the, uh, the only one I can think of. I mean, maybe somebody will think of one, but... Yeah, and we make more diverse stories and then we can, you know, I absolutely adore watching uh, a play which is about uh, a world that, that I didn't know much about, a uh, culture that is new to me, or I have limited knowledge about, and then I understand them, I have the empathy and I, I get it. And then you learn and you heal as a country. And that's, that's 
That's the thing. I think theatre is so important at communicating that story, but it needs to start with those very small changes that lead to these bigger things that happen over time. And I think actually the pandemic has allowed us that little bit of headspace to go, hold on, what is going on? We've got to improve. We have to be better. You put that beautifully, Hal. And what I would say is that, you know, heal is such a good word. Like weirdly, even if you're the people who hold power, like if you're holding that power and it's like an oppressive thing, you, you know, you need, like everyone needs to heal. Do you know what I mean? Like, you know, you kind of, it's it's not good for you either. Like Mm. in terms of, uh, programming, as I know that Hal thinks the same way here, that the more eclectic and diverse the stories that you tell, actually the more interesting the art is and the more interesting the art form is. To me, it just seems absolutely obvious that that's how you inject new life into theatre. Theatre is a great thing for, like, it's a kind of magpie art form, isn't it? We take from everybody, we steal stuff from everybody all the time and then make a new thing in terms of the the live performance. And so the kind of broader your palette to paint on, the like, the more exciting and interesting the work that you're going to program is. And I think, you know, for the RSC, that's a real, I can see the enormous difficulty and challenge in the organisation in that essentially it is an organisation set up to, quite rightly in loads of ways, celebrate one author who obviously is a, a dead white guy. Like, so I don't have a problem with that as the organization's aim. Shakespeare's a gift to all of, you know, humankind. But then you've then got to think about, okay, if you're lifting up his voice, the people that tell, the reason we tell the sh- stories from Shakespeare is they're endlessly open to interpretation. Like that's been the case since he wrote them. And that's why he's so brilliant and so elusive. And so you've then got to go, okay, well, one hand, we have to make sure that people reinterpreting Shakespeare are doing it in, in new and interesting ways that are more representative of the world of the UK in 2020 and beyond. And secondly, I think in the other brilliant uh, work that the RSC does, be exploring the classical canon, albeit new work, you've then got to go, okay, well, this much of our time is dedicated to this particular dead white guy so this has to be about new and other voices to kind of balance that or new perspectives on it i think those two things need to go hand in hand for the rsc in particular just moving on to something ever so slightly different how has this time changed the way you are thinking about your own work as not just an artistic director but really as as an artist as, as a theater maker yourself so i mean i had gone on this journey a little bit already but it's accelerated my thinking in terms of if it's an existing older text, I've got to have something really pertinent to say with this about the world of today. Uh, as an example of that, when I you know, came to do The Taming of the Shrew, I thought long and hard. Um, I didn't have to do that play, uh, but I felt at that time that I could say something interesting about where the world was at in gender relations. And at the same time, honour what I think Shakespeare was interested in, which was exploring gender. And in a way, like I could find a way that could do those two things together. I think the political context in which you make the piece of work now has to be as important as you like having a job. And I can also say that I can say that because I I have a steady income from running a theatre and I understand that, that that's a position of privilege. But in a way, if you don't do the right thing, when you're in that position, you're probably never going to do it, are you? So it gives me that thing. So I can choose to exercise my choice. I've sat in a lot of meetings about 
diversity and equity and inclusion in my life a lot. Uh, and the aim is to never have to sit in one again. And the way that happens is by just doing the changing. Let's ask another question. If you could jump 50 years into the future, Justin, you're an old, you're an old man, Justin, with your cane and you, you sit down in the theatre. What do you want to see happening in, in theatres and spaces across the UK at that time? That is such a fantastically good question. And uh, I think the two things that I'm interested in in plays is, you know, how do you live in an unjust world? Or I suppose the other half of that is like, how do you make the world more just? Those two, th- that question. Um, and then the other one is, uh, you know, how do you, how do you as a person make it through the night, you know? Um, and, and I guess uh, I'm hoping that when I come back in 50 years time, uh, I don't want those things to be solved because I think they're brilliantly interesting and perennial questions, but I hope that like the next generation of theatre makers are grappling with them and doing them in a way where they're experimental with form and, you know, um, that, yeah, that they've taken up that mantle and gone, wow, like, and they're doing it in a way that I couldn't even imagine now. Great answer. Thanks. Full of joy as well. I just think yeah. joy is not a thing that we talk about in theatre. Like, I only want to make stuff that's full of joy. Like, even even when there's bad stuff in it. Like, I'm interested in, like, it being done joyfully. I completely agree. And I, I just, those moments of wonder and joy in, in a theatre are just so awesome. And then you feel so alive. And I always think in every play that I direct, I always want that moment of, like, like visual wonder visual excitement takes your breath away anyway um right then uh let's talk a little bit more about young people whilst our theatres have been dark a lot of the community and education work has that goes alongside uh, theatres and main uh productions has has either fallen away or had to go online or been heavily adapted so as an ad of a theatre for young audiences as obviously as well as an experienced facilitator what do you feel theatre's role within the community is right now? Um, and what are your thoughts on how this is going to work in the coming months? Um, so uh, how do you know Alan Lane and Slung Low? I do indeed, yeah. So I always end up in absolute awe of uh, uh, Alan and what they did, you know, in that they literally just, essentially, when the pandemic hit, you know, they turned the Holbeck Working Men's Club into a, you know, an enormous kitchen and just fed everybody in Holbeck and amazing. But we're now at a point where actually it can go back to the theatre and the arts, not the immediate, you know, like life and death thing of of feeding someone. And and it seems to me as theatre makers and artists and practitioners, how can we help heal? Now I have a bias here in that, like obviously the well-being of children and young people is a paramount importance to, to me and to what the unicorn does and actually to what the RSC does, the RSC's education department is unbelievable. The skills that theatre teach you about collaboration and uh, expression and creativity and teamwork, like they're just great skills for life. I mean, they're all very well and good in, you know, making shows, but we have to be turning what we do in community and learning work and really making sure that we are serving and supporting teachers, community leaders and the most vulnerable people every day I read of like different things that people are doing like this like you know um emergency disco I think it was called which was again it was just all about teenagers having a place an online space where they could express themselves make work do you know all that kind of stuff we've got to be doing that I mean and I don't want to say that and think say that in a way that loads of theatres were already doing that they just had to stop a little bit 
because of the pandemic. I just think they've got to, we've all got to get back, roll our sleeves up and get stuck in even more. So at the height of the pandemic, my wife and I only watched romantic comedies. It's all we could handle. Um, then we went on a Leonardo DiCaprio phase, um, going through his back catalogue. It seemed that we just wanted to escape. Um, but what kind of work should we be making um, when we're able to make something a bit more of scale? Do we need escape or do we need stories of hope, regeneration, reunion, or do we just need to address some of these issues bang on? so funny. I love that, that you went on the Leo DiCaprio back. I mean, I bet that was a brilliant journey. <laughs> I mean, I did a bit of a similar thing. I watched some comedies. I watched a uh, detective series, Bosch, which is set in L.A., um, if we can come out of this telling stories that are joyful, hopeful about in connection and about expanding the world, that is great. And if we can do all of that and do the thing that my favourite TV show, The Wire, did brilliantly, which is to tell the story, do all of that hope and expansion and imagination, but making sure that we're telling the stories of the, you know, 90% of people who don't get their stories told, well, that would be amazing theatre. Like, that would be amazing theatre. Um, Justin, I'm afraid the bell has just rung. Uh, we better uh, drink up. Um, who would you like your next interval drink to be with? Anyone in the world currently living? Okay, so this is a really boring answer, but I'm really intrigued to know what Keir Starmer's like. So I think I would want to have a drink with Keir Starmer and find out if uh, he's fun in the pub. Plenty to chew Plenty the fat Plenty to chew on the fat over, yeah. Uh, that's the end of interval drinks. Uh, and I just want to say one... Final thank you to our guest this week, Justin. Thank you and enjoy the second half. Hello, I'm Kemi Bo Jacobs, and next week I'll be buying around at the bar for Juliet Jilks Romero. I wonder what she'll be drinking. Remember, you can catch your favourite episodes again on the Royal Shakespeare Company website. Interval Drinks is sponsored by Darwin Escapes.